Rod, what's going on, man? Sardines, bro. Benny and sardines. <laughs> Gross. See, everybody says that, including my wife, when I brought him home, she's like, you need to take that back. And I just, you know, you know, like, all right, from it. Like, you just decided to get into eating I, Well, people have been talking about him for a while. I was like, you know what? They can't be that bad. So, I heard him actually compared to canned tuna, and I like canned tuna. So, I actually think they're more mild than canned tuna and even more nutrient-dense and the protein, good fats, the um, lots of vitamin D, tons of vitamin D. It tastes good, man. Throw them on some crackers, throw them on some bread, have them with some avocado. You know how we Californians do with our avocado. So, I used to work at a pizza shop, multiple pizza shops, and we used to put sardines on pizza. And the the feeling and the, con- the, the texture of that sense will forever oh. stick in my brain and it's just disgusting mm. so well, next time i next time i pop open a can i'm gonna send you a photo sounds good welcome back or welcome to more in common if this is the first time you've joined us uh this is our this is our social experiment where we look to find common ground and and try to leave a a better world for our kids we do that by exposing difficult topics such as race politics religion mental health but we do it by evaluating people's stories that relate to their experiences with these things in an effort to evolve the way we think about each other, not just the way we think. Um, ultimately, the goal is to expose that we have more in common than that which divides us, even if it is rooted in differing point of views. Uh, today, uh, we're, we're, we're blessed to have Bracia Dover with us. Uh, Rodney met Bracia, Bracia's parents um, on a trip to Hawaii by, by happenstance because he was reading his, or he was wearing his t-shirt uh, that says, um, be brave enough to start a conversation that matters. And, and Bracia's parents, you know, approached Rodney and they had a conversation about it. And then they ultimately asked him if they, we, if we had talked about mental health. Um, so they suggested we should talk to her, to their daughter. And we're you know, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to talk to her. Uh, Bracia is certainly, uh, an impressive young woman who's, who's had some struggles with, with mental health from a very early age. Um, and you know, we'll talk a lot about that in this episode. So um, certainly, you know, enjoy the show. And as always, and we'll say it at the beginning, I uh, certainly don't want to water it down at the end. Um, you know, follow us on the show on the socials, you know, at more in common pod for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can certainly email us if you have any questions or suggestions or feedback at contact at more in pod more in common pod.com and you know certainly follow us on our website www.moreincommonpod.com and uh you know you can follow our blogs if you're interested and and check us out so again uh looking forward to to bringing this conversation to you and and i hope you enjoy the show okay i think my like mission statement if i could put it in words would be I'm trying to end the stigma associated around mental illness. If you were going to introduce yourself on stage or to everybody listening right now, how would you introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. My name is Bracia. A little bit about me. I love love storytelling. I know I'm working.
screenwriter um, for film. My name is a city in Italy, which is kind of a fun story to tell. <laughs> um, as a person, I'm a very gritty person. I have a lot of grit. <laughs> um, that's a little bit about me. I'd probably say something like that. Tell us a little bit about your background, like growing up. So I was actually born in Orem, Utah. I didn't live there very long either, really. Um, we moved to Arizona and, you know, I was the oldest or I was the first born. And then um, I had my brother Marcus or my mom, <laughs> my mom had my brother Marcus and um that was a little bit hard for me because I was kind of the center of attention and, mm. you know, being the oldest sibling, you kind of, you get both parents' attention just full on, you know? And so when Marcus was born- How, how, oh, how old were you when he was born? Let's see, he's 16, 17, so he's three years younger than me, so I was three, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Um, so yeah, I guess my mom said that, I don't remember this, but she said, you know, when she was like nursing him, I wanted her attention. So I would like stand in front of her and just pee. Like, oh. Oh. <laughs> and it would just, I don't remember that obviously, but she said I would do anything for attention, which oh. is funny. But so Marcus came, um, yeah. and then I had enough, my mom had another little boy, Jensen, and he, um, so he's the youngest and today we all get along really well when, when we were younger, I think we had our just, you know, little arguments here and there, but, um, yeah, so I had, I have two younger brothers, um, in hi like high school and junior high, even elementary school, I've, I've always been super artsy and creative, um, and Kind of like, I guess why we're talking today about, you know, everything is what kind of started kind of the spiral of events and downfall for for me with my health, which is coming up, I guess. Um, I fell off a 15 foot zip line in fifth grade and I broke both my arms and I blacked out and was unconscious and, um, you know, that that whole time I think was hard because, you know, my dad, you know, they took me to the emergency room and, you know, I got, you know, two casts on my arms and like this, you know, and, um, I think that was not, it wasn't even the cast, you know, and that were the hardest part, but it was having no control over anything in my life, which, what, I mean, nothing. My mom had to feed me and, like, bathe me, and I couldn't even open doors or write with a pencil. And so, um, you know, I dealt with that for a little while, and then I got my casts off, and I was suddenly able to have, you know, so much control. And, you know, and I didn't really know what I, you know, what I could do with it. So how long did you have the casts? I think it was like six months. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a while. But yeah, so I got those casts off and um, that's when I was like, okay, well, what can I control being, you know, in elementary school? And then I was like, well, I can control food. 
um, which was really one of my only options because there wasn't much I could control at that age, I think. And so that's when like my mental health challenges started because, um, I started, you know, I stopped really eating. I just focused on eating certain things and then I fixated on calories and, um, I exercised way like more than a girl my age should have. And, um, and you were 10 at the time, right? I think I was, yeah, 10 or I think it started at 10 and it got worse at 11. Okay. But, um, yeah, so it was pretty like just downhill, you know, it didn't get, there weren't any ups and I was just, you know, losing weight. And, um, so the biggest thing was I didn't see what was going on because it's a mental illness and that's part of it. You don't really see it, you know? So my family saw it and my parents were concerned, you know, and my dad was they had no idea. They didn't even know what to do, you know, cause it was their first exposure to mental illness in our family with their kids. So, um, yeah, that we started doing things like counseling and then they took me to see nutritionist and therapist and, they were all saying, you know, if, if she doesn't start eating, she's going to need to be admitted to, you know, the hospital for like inpatient treatment. And, um, so when, you know, when it was really at, at its worst, my dad told my mom that I had, you know, I needed to go to the hospital cause I wasn't going to make it, you know, I could just stop. Like my heart could stop beating cause I had no nutrients. So, um, it was on Christmas Eve. I can't remember the year, but I was 11 years old. And um, they took me to Phoenix Children's Hospital. And I stayed there, you know, in their unit overnight. They kind of tube fed me, you know, and it was terrible. And then, um, and then the next day they said that they thought I should go to the children's psychiatric unit. And so I spent Christmas in the psychiatric unit, you know, when I was 11 years old. And man, yeah. Man. So that was, um, that, but that was tough. Yeah. That I think even to this day, I still have a little bit of a fear of hospitals that I'm trying to get over because mm. it was really hard for me to, you know, watch my dad leave me, you know, at the hospital. Mm. Um, you know, during that time, and I was just so scared, and I, you know, I, I wasn't myself either, because I think when you have an eating disorder, you just kind of, it's kind of like a dark, like, body, mm. like, a, kind of embodies you, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. yeah, that was, and I, yeah, so that just kind of happened really right after I got those cast off my arms, so. Well, you mentioned the control thing from the cast, is that something that you've figured out now um, looking back or like, were you aware of it then? And I, I know you mentioned that you probably weren't, but what's your, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Cause I think at the time I, cause I wasn't aware of like, you know, the fact that I was losing weight rapidly and, I didn't even realize what I was doing with food, really. And mm. So I think definitely I have become more aware of it today. 
And because I don't think I ever looked in the mirror and saw a girl who was obese. You know, I just saw an average girl and it was never really about the way I looked. But I couldn't identify it then, you know, but it was Mm -hmm. really more about the control and just being a, you know, sixth grader who could control something. How long was it before your parents started to notice? You said it started when you were 10 and you were hospitalized when you were 11, but how long in between the the points of beginning that down downslide to when your parents first noticed and, and seeked, sought help for, for him? Yeah. Um, my, my mom says that, um, they had started to pick up on little things like my, when we would go out to eat at a restaurant, I would say I have to use the restroom. And then I would go and do jumping jacks in the bathroom stalls. And my mom said she found me once, you know, doing that and other things like, um, I would ask my mom how many calories are in that. And she'd be, you know, like, you never cared before, you know, like what's going on. And, um, but she said that she was reading a book a friend gave her one day in bed and she looked over at my dad and just was in tears because she said this book describes what Brisha is going through and it was all about anorexia and so she like told my dad you know at that moment she I you know she's like we need to get Brisha help so I think that's when it was like a aha like you have to you have to like do something about this so thank you for sharing that yeah. like I it's um you do it with grace, and I uh, I consider sharing, like even doing this podcast, sharing little bits about my life mm-hmm. from time to time is really difficult. Um, thank you, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and and you know, talking about mental illness in general, uh, kind of a step back, like I. I, similar to what you said, your parents, like they hadn't really had an experience with it. Uh, growing up, it was almost a, like a four letter, seen as like a four letter word, like mental illness or like psychology or therapist. Like, no, you don't, you don't do that. Like, that's not a thing. Um, in my family. And then even like the larger community is just like this, this, um, this thing you don't do like if you do it you're you're a pariah and like we don't want to we don't want to associate with people who do that because they're weak like because they have they have an issue a and then they seek help for it um so i'm coming at the like i'm i'm very interested in this like this process and how your parents jumped in without knowing what was happening They, they they just wanted to help you and i think that's um something in the story that I think is, is, is cool that they were open enough to avenues to, um, try and help and and maybe not all of them, uh, fruitful. Like, is there a point in it, in all of it for you where you did become aware of what was like, what was happening to you or what were you were feeling or thinking inside? Like how, how did that manifest or what was the moment for you that kind of changed things? Yeah. The, um, well, first of all, going back to my parents, um, I know a lot of people who have a mental illness today, whose parents, 
think that they're making it up Mm. that, oh, they have depression. Why can't they just get out of bed? And it's so sad because it's such a real thing. And I think that, um, my parents have been so supportive and they've been my biggest advocates. Even when I couldn't see Mm. it, they were the ones who, you know, were so concerned for my life and for getting help. And so, um, definitely couldn't have done any of this if I didn't have supportive parents who, even though they couldn't understand it at the start, they really tried to, you know, understand mental illness as I went through everything. But, um, so when I first like realized what kind of the extreme, just, I I think it was kind of all a big game for me, the, you know, eating disorder, anorexia stuff until, I got released from the Phoenix Children's Hospital on New Year's Day and um, I, you know, my dad, you know, picked me up and he said, so are things going to change, you know? And I said, you know, I said, well, of course, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it was just, it was just my, you know, I was trying to deceive, you know, play the game and um, they went downhill again and just kind of relapsed and stopped eating and exercise, you know, just skyrocketed and Um, so they wanted to find, you know, more specialized children's treatment for like eating disorders specifically instead of just psychiatric stuff in general. So they took me to Denver Children's Hospital and that was huge because I didn't think that they would literally pull me out of school, you know, fly me to Denver. We live in Denver for a little while and, Um, so I think it was that, you know, that time when I really realized that there really is something wrong with me, you know, and I, I, I don't think even at that point I was like, oh, I'm going to be so worried about what my friends think, you know, I think I was just kind of like, okay, like I had so little energy, you know, I, I, I think I was just going with what I had to do, but that was the big, like, wow, we're leaving Arizona, we're going to Denver, I'm going to be at this, you know, children's unit for a while, and um, we lived at the Ronald McDonald house, me and my mom did, and um, it wasn't like, you know, it was a really nice thing, you know, that we were able to stay there, and it wasn't super, you know, it was more affordable for, you know, these hospital patients, but um, still, it just was, it was hard, because, you know, you're you're already struggling with, you know, this mental illness and, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to be away from home. And, but, you know, that was the big like eye opener for me to, to, you know, to see my parents take that step. Like we have to get her help somewhere else, you know. How, how old were you when you went to Denver and for how long did you live there? Um, I was 11 and we were there for, two months mm. yeah okay so so i i you know to, to rodney's you know backstory um i have i have a, a a decent amount of mental illness history in my family as well i actually um was on antidepressants for about five years back uh, around your around your age uh, when i was exiting high school and entering college um, and it, and it was definitely something that, I mean, I talked to my mom about it, you know, but you, you didn't really talk about it. It, it wasn't really something that, that you wanted to share. And I have a 
ton of questions because I really, with Rodney, appreciate you, your willingness to overall share the story, right? And, and I want to anchor there for a second on where you are today in sharing your story. It, I, I've watched a couple of your videos, which I, I really appreciate. And I've watched the videos about you. Um, you do a great job producing these videos in, in an effort to raise awareness and in uh, comfort to talk about it. Is that ultimately why you're comfortable talking about it? Like, what is your mission as it relates to this? I, I'm curious to, to hear, hear that from you. Okay, I think my like, mission statement, if I could put it in words, would be I'm trying to end the stigma associated around mental illness. Um, And I think that started not after the eating disorder, but more recently after I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, And I think for a while, you know, I, I looked... I would look around and, you know, because I've, I've broken my arms. I've, you know, I've, I've had physical injuries, you know, in my life. And I've gotten so much sympathy during those times. You know, when I broke my arms, I, I'm not kidding you. I had someone come by every day with either balloons or flowers or notes or just. And then, you know, when I, de- you know, developed this eating disorder, no one talked about it, you know, and um, when my mom you know, would talk to her friends about it, you know, and I would later see her friends, they would look at me just so like different. And, um, so it's, it's, it's hard because also I know people who have a mental illness who are ashamed to talk about it. And I think that with what I've been through, it's really motivated me and almost like moved me to share my story and help others see that, you don't have to be ashamed of having a mental illness because it's no different than cancer or breaking your arms or, um, I mean, anything like that. It's in some ways it's even harder because you can't physically see it. So. Or physically mend it. What do you think? Why do you think we have the, why do you think the stigma exists? Do you have any thoughts or any theories on that? Um, well, one, because, um, you can't see, you know, you can't see if someone has depression, it's not, you really can't see it unless, you know, they look sad or, you know, but even then it's hard to identify. Um, another thing, there's a stigma just because people don't talk about it, you know, and that's because, you know, if you even look at like cancer, like breast cancer, like the pink ribbons and, there's so much effort, you know, that people put into, you know, awareness, awareness yeah, raising money and funds. And um, there's very few organizations out there that deal with raising awareness and ending the stigma with mental illness. But there are some definitely. But if, yeah, if people started the conversation, you know, and talked about this kind of stuff, the stigma would, which people are doing more today than they have in the past, but the stigma would slowly erase if people would just talk about it and not be ashamed, which is hard to do. It, it, there, it's there's actually a football player, your favorite sport, um, <laughs> <laughs> a wide receiver uh, named Brandon Marshall, who is a big proponent of talking about mental health, and so Mental Health Awareness Day is during the Breast Cancer Month 
for so the NFL does a big thing for breast cancer month and they all wear pink and it's cute like football players wearing pink <laughs> a lot of solidarity it's, it's it's cool and so but for mental um awareness day he wore special cleats i'm not what's the it's color purple, isn't it? that would be associated green green yeah. so he wore special dunk up cleats that were green for that day and he got fined <laughs> because it wasn't with protocol for like the breast care awareness and it, it it's it's like it's a small it's not, actually it's not even a small thing like he was trying to bring awareness to an area where you know as a as a black male i know that black males suffer with this at, at a huge rate and i would say that even in my family i've seen things that i'm pretty sure now looking back are mental health issues and i see you know keith said he was diagnosed with some depression like i i think i have some undiagnosed i've i've had bouts of depression and um pretty sure i'm add undiagnosed keith might i think it's a fair conclusion (laughs) fair conclusion And, and you know from my standpoint i think part of it is i agree with you on not being able to see it you know, I'm a, so I'm an engineer by trade. So like data and like info, like stuff that's tangible. I love that. So I, you know, it's hard to prove, it's hard to prove to other people, hard to prove and acknowledge to yourself. And, you know, I guess for me personally, like, it's like my mind is this safe haven where I should be able to control what's happening in it, which is crazy because you can't, but, um, and I think a lot of people fear not having all their faculties, and so they don't it's, want to talk about not. It's interesting, especially when you talk about Brandon Marshall, because Brandon Marshall, when he came into the league, was considered a bit of a, a problem receiver. He always had these bursts of uh, temper. You know, he'd throw fits on the sideline and you know yell at teammates and all these things. And it, it and it ultimately came down to, I mean, he has borderline personality disorder, so he has to control it, and he's had to build it. But at that time, it's oh, he's just a bad dude or right like and there's this and i i think it's a a strong social um reason why it's so stigmatizes because this idea pick yourself up get out there get off the couch you you can control what your mind does and and it and it's, you've got to be able to, I, hey, I don't know why you, I can do this. Why can't you? And I, and we can't really s- empathize with it unless we've had some level of experience or we've talked about it, like you said, or understand, hey, you know, what's going on? Why is this happening? And let's find a way to, to help move forward so you feel better without creating this this victim shaming to say hey you're you know you 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 don't know what you're talking about you're just making it up right so help me out here you said recent diagnosis of bipolar what is bipolar disorder is that the proper term Yeah? yeah okay so i i was diagnosed with bipolar one disorder so um People think of bipolar as you hit the highs and then you hit the extreme lows and it's just a psych roller coaster. But that wasn't the case for me. I just hit the highs and not the lows. So I just go up and then I come back to my normal state. Um, But 
this happened my junior year of high school. Um, I started dis- you know, displaying these symptoms and once again, I couldn't see them, you know, cause that's part of mental illness, but you know, my parents started picking up on these things and, um, basically the symptoms were just like by, you could go online, type in symptoms of bipolar. Um, you know, I've spent over excessive amount of money, you know, spent way too much money, just crazy money. Um, you just, you don't have a big appetite cause your mind is just go, go, go. And you want to just like constantly be doing something and not stop and eat. Not because it's associated with an eating disorder, just because you just don't. Um, you have a like your sex drive is hype, you know, hyped up. Um, you um, you just when you talk, you just don't even take a breath for air. You're just like, how's your day going? Like, how, you know, what 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 have you been doing today? Okay, are we going to the store? Like, you know, and so um, you stay up late. You don't get enough sleep. But because there's this chemical imbalance in your brain, you just doesn't even phase you. You're, you don't, you think, what's wrong? Like, I'm totally fine, you know? And so um, I had to, you know, get help for this. And, um, you know, this is so different than anorexia, you know, even though it's in the same category, you know, of mental illness, it's totally different. And I, I would say that this, having bipolar disorder has been so much harder for me than, you know, struggling with an eating disorder at a young age, um, which I, you know, I, it was kind of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy finding help for bipolar because it wasn't as identify, you know, you couldn't identify it as easily, you know, and, you know, they were jumping between, you know, different diagnoses with, you know, what, what could Bracia have, you know, like, oh, it could be bipolar, it could be this, but, um, ultimately I got the help, you know, I went to, you know, I went to the hospital, you know, they said, okay, we recommend she go to a treatment facility. And so I went to a treatment facility for a week called Banner Behavioral Centers. Um, and that was my junior year of high school. And then I got back and, you know, the the diagnosis was, oh, you know what, we're going to have to watch her because, we don't know, you know, what it could be, and we don't want to diagnose her with anything until she displays more, you know, symptoms. So then, so that was during the spring of my junior year. Then during the springtime of my senior year, I had more, you know, bipolar episodes. And these are called, you know, I'm hitting psychosis, I'm hitting manic or mania. And so you know, I'm seeing things and hearing, like, I think I'm communicating with people that aren't really there. So it's scary, you know, and, but, um, so then I literally repeated the same steps. I went to the hospital then I go to Banner Behavioral Centers for another week. Were you going to ask a question? It's three questions. I'll, I'll nail them now because so I don't have to interrupt you. How do you manage it? How often do your episodes actually occur and when you're in the episode, what's the environment around you like with your family? How, how does your family get you to a point where you can go to the hospital? What, how do you receive that? Because that's a really hard thing to, from the outside working in that situation for a lot of people, 
it's, it's hard, right? And, and what works for you? I'm very curious. So, that was three questions, so I'll stop. <laughs> okay, so, um, so to finish up, I, yeah. you know, I went to the second time to this, you know, treatment facility, came out with um, the diagnosis of definitely being bipolar. So, they put me on a medication called Cyprexa, and um, this medication... If you're in an elevated state of mind, it almost instantly can take you down hmm. within like hours of taking the dosage. Um, but it has terrible side effects like gaining weight, hmm. um, swelling of your face. Like, I mean, I, it, you look in the mirror sometimes and your eyes don't have a glisten or glow. They look like stoned, like not even there. So, wow. So that medication today wouldn't work for me. So those treatment facilities didn't, they helped me short term, but not in the long term. So it's really hard to seek out treatment and get help for mental illness, you know. And so after I left those places, you know, the next step is to find a psychiatrist who can put you on the right medication or even a counselor who you can talk to when you're struggling. Um, so we were having the hardest time finding a good psychiatrist because good psychiatrists are hard. To so find. hard. Um Oh, yeah. So we were on the wait list and I was just I was I I'm a really hopeful person, but I was really hopeless at that time because, you know, I, I would just I came to my parents and I said, I don't understand why it's so hard to get help for mental, you know, mental health. Why can't I get help? And they said, you know, we know of this place in Tucson, Arizona called Sierra Tucson. And we've had a friend go there and um it's, you stay there for 30 days and you get a treatment, you know, team of doctors. And um, it's, a, it's a lot of time, but if you go there, then you'll get instant help. You'll have a team of doctors. And so I, I wasn't even like, oh, I'm, you know, I wasn't scared. I, I was just at the point where I needed help. So um, I go to this facility and I would say that facility is where I learned how to live a happy and like successful life being diagnosed with bipolar disorder because I'm surrounded by people my age who, you know, have mental illness and they're, you know, they're great people. They're, some of them are just very gifted in certain things and very genuine, talented, caring people. And through that, you know, I was able to get the right medication and, you know, dosage for me, um, I was able to like figure out what I can do when I have, if I have a manic episode again. Um, and like, I kind of established how important it is to stay in connection with my family because they're my biggest, you know, support system. I can't, my friends don't understand if I call them and say, you know, I'm like, I need help. You know, they don't understand they can't even help really. So, um, so yeah, after I left there, <clears throat> when did you leave there? Um, How long ago was that? Out of curiosity. That, yeah, that was, so I didn't go to my freshman fall semester because I was there. Okay. So that was the, 2017. Yeah. So I left there. I, today I'm taking, you know, my medication. I'm, I have to do certain things like in my lifestyle that I, wouldn't have to do if I didn't have bipolar, which is I have to have maintain a regular ski, sleep schedule because 
um, if I don't get the right amount of sleep, then it could throw off kind of my, you know, like just the cycle of everything. And so, um, so yeah, so today I do things, um, like I, I have a hard time meditating, but I'll try to go out in nature and I'll like, it's really nice for me to just like be away from technology and just like slow my mind down. Um, I do like, I do things that, um, like make me happy as a person, like writing and reading and like playing music. And, um, so those things help, but I haven't had another manic or psychotic episode since being on this medication, but, um, it's not worth going off the medication to like, see if I would have another one. Mm. I'm really at a good state right now. So, um, I don't want to mess with the levels, but, um, yeah, my family, I mean, if I had another episode, they would be able to tell because I've had two episodes and they'd be able to just spot it. Even if they were to FaceTime or call me, you know, they'd, they'd be able to tell, you know, because I'm just not myself. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, I wouldn't be able to say I'm having a psychotic episode, right. you know, but I, they'd be able to pick it up. So, so a lot of questions. Uh, one you mentioned you just said writing 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 yeah writing i thought you said writing i like writing okay, horses writing. though <laughs> that's what i thought so <laughs> that's where i was going i thought you said writing i was gonna say what <laughs> motorcycle um <laughs> riding horses correlates with your um eating disorder yeah no no it does yes? yeah yeah one of my really good friends is a, a vet uh, veterinary he studied in Colorado and um I mentioned that we were going to be talking to you and he's like oh yeah animal therapy he's like it's a, it's a thing he's like I can he's like I can tell you all about the science behind it yeah I love that yeah hmm. um I kind of skipped over that I don't know why I did because it's a big part of my story but um no no worries <laughs> so after the Denver Children's Hospital um nothing was helping still and my dad saw that I loved horses and I had this just huge love for these animals. And, um, I was doing horse riding lessons at a local place and, you know, my dad, you know, said to my mom, you know, I have, I have my aunt and uncle in Cody, Wyoming. I wonder if we could, you know, set her up to spend the summer or even a few weeks up there and just be around horses and see if it would help her. And my mom said, no way, like we couldn't monitor her food, you know, and which I understand because it's a tricky situation. But, um, you know, my dad brought it up to our doctors at the time and they said, no, she can't go to Wyoming. She needs to constantly be monitored. You know, we need to see her every week, you know. And um, I said, you know, I told my dad, I said, please let me go. I would love to be around horses. That's what I need. And he like listened to me. um, And. So I went to Cody, Wyoming. He went, he, we flew out there, you know, went to their place. He stayed with me for a little bit. And the first night there, the, you know, my aunt, she said, all right, we're making hamburgers. And my dad looked at me and he's like, oh, shoot, you're not going to eat that, are you? (laughs) And, um, so yeah, I mean, they're just country people. They don't know anything about, you know, this. And so she brings out the hamburgers and I eat a full hamburger. And I know it doesn't seem like much, but that was like the turning point. Yeah. That was like, that is, that is when like my eating disorder started to like slowly get better. So, um, 
I ate the hamburger. My dad, like, the whole time was looking at me like, what the hell? Like, what happened? <laughs> um, I would have been a puddle of tears. I would have been a mess. Yeah. I would have been a mess. Yeah, no, he was in awe. I could tell. Um, so, you know, my uncle, he's the big rodeo guy, you know, and he, he's a roper, team roper, and he um, he was like, all right, Bracia, we're going to go. This is the next day. He's He says, all right, Bracia, we're going to go pick up the horse you're going to be riding this summer. And I, I thought I would just, you know, ride one of his, but, you know, it turns out his friend Duffy had this college rodeo horse, you know, his daughter had been riding and she just got married. And so this horse was just sitting around and he needed someone to, you know, ride him. So, so yeah, I like, um, went, we went with the horse trailer, my dad and my uncle and I, and I was so excited. I'm like, what color is the horse? And he's like, well, he looks white, but he's actually gray. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, what's his name? And he's like, oh, his name's Blue. And I was like, oh, that's so great. Why Why did they name him Blue if he's white? <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's like, well, if you spray him with water and clean him, he turns corduroy blue. Hmm. So um, huh. it's kind of cool. So anyways, I, yeah. I get there and I see him. And uh, it was so, it was so neat because you know, he's in a kind of a stall or arena with all of these brown horses. And then you see this like white, beautiful, like horse just like standing there. And he just looks at me and, you know, and they, you know, put the head stall on him and bring him out, you know, and I just like got to like pet him and like look at him. And I think like I had found like something I really loved other than like, well, at that time, I don't really know what I, like, had loved. You know, I was struggling, but um, I loved, I could tell I was just going to love this horse. So um, we load him in the trailer, and we even took him back to their house, and they have this big arena, and, you know, he saddled the horse up, and I got on the horse, and it was, it was the coolest. I mean, it was so, I just, I felt so connected to this animal and, like, um, like I, I wasn't the best rider, but I felt like when I rode him, it was so easy and I just felt like, so just graceful, like a dance, you know? And so, um, yeah, so my dad ends up leaving, goes back, you know, home to Arizona and I, you know, spend the summer there and I get into barrel racing, um, which is where you just come into like a rodeo arena and you go around three barrels and like a cloverleaf pattern. And so, um, yeah, I had to say at the end of the summer, you know, I had developed this great bonding and friendship with this horse and, you know, my parents came to pick me up and I had to say goodbye to this horse. And, you know, I, I just broke down and I, I said, dad, there, I can't, I, 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 you know, I just was crying nonstop cause I couldn't leave him. And, so my, my dad looked at my, you know, uncle and he said, do you think there's a way we could buy this horse? Um, so turns out, you know, we said we built an arena in our backyard and because we lived on horse property and that following Halloween, we drove up to get blue and we brought him back. And that's um, that we weren't expecting to get a horse, but that's how we got a horse. <laughs> And that's how my recovery started with that horse. What, uh, what, 
from your personal experience, because I know there's a lot of science out there about animal therapy and things like that. But from you, from you, like, what was it about blue that helped you recover from from anorexia? Um, so he was afraid of being tied up to post and he had a lot of fears and I had a lot of fears, um, food, like, you know, like not being able to control anything in my life. Um, so I think I've tried to like analyze that today cause I don't, I can't really pinpoint, but, um, I think it was that we both had fears and together we kind of got through them. Like when I, when I sold blue, um, he, he wasn't afraid of being tied up to a trailer post or a hitch or anything. He like had no fear. Like we were both like in a really good place. So I think we really helped each other. I think it was like we had, cause I, he may have in the past gotten like, like, I don't know if he was hit or something when he was tied up at a point which scared him. But, um, like, you know, I think together we just kind of were able to, like, I don't, I don't even know if I could sense his, just his fears or, and he could sense mine, but we just really helped each other, I think. And so that would be my guess. We could like sense each other. It's, it's interesting with the, um, and by, by no means am I analyzing you. So, um, but it's interesting because there is, the, the, and I'm not sure if it, maybe maybe you can clarify. Did you feel because I mean at such a young age you're experiencing something not a lot of people at your age experience that really no one understood you, which is common with mental illness, right? Oh, and yeah. and it's hard to have that bond with another person when some, when you cannot find someone else to, that, that, that sympathizes and empathizes in a way that it's unique. And it's almost that the, the, that blue filled that, right? There's an empathy and a sympathy there that yeah. created that bond that you couldn't find with people. Um, so what role do horses play in your life now? Um, so I, you know, I live in an apartment, so I can't have horses in my apartment. I wish I could, but they wouldn't fit. Um, I, over the summer, you know, I wanted to be around horses. And so this past summer, so, um, I volunteered on a horse ranch and I was really hoping the lady would let me ride, but she never did. So I scooped up. (laughs) (laughs) um at least I got around horses but um today like I mean I'm 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 not able to have just a horse in my backyard but um I you know I say that when I when I'm able to I definitely want to have horses again so that I can you know just be around them and you know they're just they're such strong strong creatures and animals and so even just to see like just the way they carry themselves and, you know, just the way they are. It's just, even if I'm not, if I'm seeing them from the side of the road driving by, you know, it's just really neat to see that because they're amazing animals. So They are. I've always, well, not always, since college, I've wanted a horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, there's a lot of horses near us. Actually, Compton, so one of our first times in Compton, yeah. we saw a horse riding down the street. 
And it turns out there are a lot, there's, um, there's a lot of open area in Compton and there's, they raise horses there. And then they actually use horses for like reintegrating like gang members or just help having something positive for children to do in an environment where there's not typically. Um, so talk about animal therapy. Uh, there you go. But yeah, I, I want to find a way to make it happen. I fell in love with an Arabian. Oh, wow. I was like, I can't believe a creature could be this big and this gentle. Yeah. It's amazing. Arabians are so pretty. Yeah. They are. Yeah. They, they really are. Uh, you said something at the very, very top. You said you're gritty. Oh, yeah. That's my favorite word. I love the word grit. <laughs> um <laughs> So what do you what do you what do you mean by it? So yeah, let me give you the definition of grit. Oh, beautiful! I love definitions. They they say that um, grit is a higher indication of success than intelligence. Wow! I believe that. Okay, here's the definition. Small loose particles of stone. Such as <laughs> nice, well played, Bracia. I'm really, well I'm played. Really stony. I'm really <laughs> stone or sand. <laughs> okay, here's the real one: courage and resolve, strength of character. Um, here's the example: he displayed true grit of the Navy pilot. Yeah. So um, I like that word because I think that. I had to have a lot of grit throughout all this mental illness stuff and um, even grit today to be, be willing to talk about it. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's true that if, cause you can be super smart, you know, and not be grit, you know, have this grit, but if you have grit, I think you can get through a lot of things in life that you wouldn't be able to get through normally without grit. I mean, you can install grit in your life any time, though. So you can you can see it with so like in high school, there were a lot of really smart kids who got like four O's, and they never tried, they never studied, they never showed up, and they just ace things. And then they get to college, and they have a hard time with the different schedule and harder classes, or sometimes with athletes that are just naturally gifted that don't show up and do the work and then they get to the next level of competition and they can't hang or um or with the lack lack of grit i have to i have to agree with your personality is like how do you do that i mean you're you're so young and you've gone through a lot that a lot of kids your age don't go through um and to manage that and it, it kind of leads brings me back to a question I, I i have about your experience going through this in high school you had your first manic episode you're you're coming out of high school and you you have your second if, I, if i've got that right and at the same time, you've got a lot of people around you who, you know, didn't see you in middle school because you were off at, you know, different hospitals managing a, a, a separate mental illness. What was your social life like? Like, how how did that impact you? And, in, in, you know, I just, yeah, how did that impact you? And how was that growing up? Yeah. Um. That's actually a good question because I've had a really hard time even going out to lunch or spending time with people my age because a lot of times I feel like the conversations we have are so just like 
I mean, ridiculous, like, just gossipy, like, let's talk about drama and things that don't really matter. Um, So, I mean, I have some good friends who have stuck with me throughout, you know, everything that, you know, I am able to spend time with and we're able to have real, like, conversations. But um, I would say that through everything, you know, I, there, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't, like, a huge support system from my, you know, my friends, I had more of like, you know, they just didn't know what was going on. And so, um, it made it a little bit hard for when I, when I like today, like being better for me to talk about it with them, you know, they, they try to understand, but they have a really hard time understanding and which I totally get. But I mean, socially, like just even in junior high, like the end of junior high, when I, you know, was back and, um, like for a little while there, I was really doing great. And, um, I mean, whatever normal is, I pretty much was the typical, like, you know, teenager, but, um, yeah, I think that it just kind of forces you to grow up when you have these experiences in life. And like, it really, you don't really meet many people who have had, you know, had these kind of experiences and, um, when you do, though, like I do have a few friends that, you know, have had these challenge, kind of challenges in life. And those are the friends that like I definitely hold on to because, you know, those are the people that, you know, kind of at the level of thinking, you know, and just I just it, I don't know. It's just not super fulfilling for me to go out with people and just talk about like, you know, drama and like gossip. And do you hear what? So. <laughs> I I struggle with that as well. And with friends, have have any of those friends that have had similar struggles had families that weren't supportive? And also you mentioned normal. And my question on normal is what like what is normal? Is there such is there such a thing as normal? Wow. In your in your opinion. <laughs> so my friends um like by challenges I guess I meant like more like I mean, they may have had mental health challenges, but more like just challenges mm-hmm. that have shaped them into the person they are today. Oh, okay. Like maybe just like gotcha. you know financial challenges or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't think there. If there is like a normal person today, I would not want to be a normal person because I think normal is so boring. And um, even when I walk around campus at my college, you know, and I see people just they. I guess they would fit the normal mold. I I think that's boring. Like, like I like to just, I mean, to everyone's their own person, but I really like to be different in, in my own way. So, um, yeah. There's a really good, um, are you familiar with the band Arcade Fire? I've heard the name, I think. Uh, they have a really good song about the normals. They're like, look, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Yeah. Um, they're an awesome band. They talk about a lot of things from like uh, homophobia to um, mental health issues to like they, they grew up in like super religious households that they no longer associate with and, and they make really good music. I am curious, how does, how does the medication make you feel? Like in your current... I'm curious. How does it make you feel? Um, so I'm on lithium. I believe 450 milligrams. I believe I'd have to look, but um, <clears throat> so 
I don't, I think I've been on it for so long. It's not like, I don't think it's changed me dramatically as a person, like the first medication I was on did. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it like, it's such a low dosage. I mean, it's really hard to tell, but I think um, it just helps like stabilize. If I, like if I were to, you know, even get a little bit of an, you know, psychotic break or something, I feel like it, instead of it being a 10, it would bring it down to a seven, Mm. you know? So like, Mm -hmm. and then I would have to do other things to help bring it down. But, um, it doesn't, doesn't like, oh, it makes me more thirsty because it's Mm. salt. So I drink a lot of water, but, um, that's like the only big one. So I feel like Tim Ferriss comes up every time we have a podcast, but he was, this is, this is, are you familiar with Tim Ferriss? No, I don't know. He's this author, podcaster, pop culture guy. Um, But he was talking about a friend uh, that started taking lithium. And this friend, he has a wife and a daughter. And he, he was afraid to tell them that he thought something was going on and that he thought he needed lithium. And then he took it and, like, I think he took it for, like, two weeks. And he And at the end of the two weeks, he's like, to his wife, like, honey, I, I've got a, I've, I've got a confession to tell you. I've, I've been taking lithium. She's like, oh my god. She's like, don't stop. <laughs> She's like, you're. I've never seen you this happy. Like, I wondered what happened over the last two weeks, but yeah. And it, it was kind of. He used that story to kind of talk about the stigma of mental illness yeah. and, like, even he he didn't even feel like he could tell his wife, and it was something that so drastically changed yeah. him. And it was, and he didn't notice the change. He just thought he felt better. He didn't realize that the outward projection of himself was like completely different. Yeah, it's crazy. It's hard to see. Yeah, you know, it's 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 always an inch because you know these medications. You often hear, "Oh, I feel numb." Um, you know, I feel disconnected, especially, you know, by, the lithium's used for, for schizophrenia a lot. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's the reason people come off the meds because you, you start feeling like you, you need to release. I'm curious though, to, to understand your management plan. Like, so we know medication is just part of it. What, what else is part of, part of your management plan if you were to head into another episode? So I guess maybe to talk about if prevention like could be a part of the management plan. Yeah. Um, I don't, I've never, so I grew up, we grew up Mormon, you know, I left the church when I was 13. So I have this kind of not pure, I guess more just like pure soul. I don't really have the desire to party crazy go out, you know, but, um, and a big thing all the doctors told me, you know, when I was diagnosed with bipolar is, you don't, I mean, you're not self-medicating, right? You know, and mm-hmm. I would say, no, like, you know, they'd be like, well, that's kind of unheard. That's not common. Most people do. Um, do you drink? You know, and I'd be like, no. They'd be like, what? Like, what do you do? And so, um, anyway, so I think if I, I don't, like, I'm con- not, I'm continuing to not drink and stuff because I think that would totally alter my state of mind and, Um, I don't think that's like a bad thing from anyone, but I think it's just for me personally to help me to stay at my state of mind. I shouldn't, but, um, so if I were to hit a psychotic episode again, I would 
hopefully in some way be able to communicate it to my family by my actions. And um, I don't think we would go to a hospital again because we've done that so many times. We have the resources now to, I could get into my psychiatrist that I've been seeing for a while. You know, she could say, okay, let's up the dose. Uh, we're going to just monitor you closely. You're going to come in, you know, and, but, um, I also, you know, I see a counselor, reg- you know, regularly that, um, when I am stressed out in life, I can talk to, and, um, that's helped me to like, just have an unbiased, you know, person to talk to. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, there's not, I, I would just say like, continuing to like not I mean not skipping out on my medication obviously but um just continuing to just do you know what I feel best for my mental health you know is what I can do you know to um prevent yeah no it's good how I appreciate how do you so it yeah thank you I well so what I a couple things I heard in there is like being consistent making decisions that you know are a healthy and be like in your best um that are going to be beneficial to you i feel like so from i i struggle with making consistent decisions like to go to bed on time every night <laughs> uh how how did you get to a place where like that was the decision that you made and you stay consistent to it like do is was it a conscious thing or was it what can have you thought about that or i actually journaled during the time that um i was having these psychotic episodes Hmm. and i look back and i can tell when i've written something late at night or versus like just during the day and when i've written something late at night it just makes no sense like it'll be like you are like doing great you just have these wings that like it makes no sense and um so I think like really think like knowing that when I'm up late at night and I'm trying to do things that are creative or like my thing, then, um, it's really, I'm not going to get anywhere because, um, it's just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, my mind just, there's no, there's no quality yeah, there. It's like, I just kind of, I mean, I think I hit like a breaking point, you know, just where I'm like, okay, I need to go to bed, you know, and it's been a good day, but, um, yeah, so it was like a conscious thing, you know, I was like, I'm looking at these journal entries, they make no sense. Okay, I'm gonna like, make sure that I'm in bed before a certain hour, or at least try to mm-hmm. be, I mean, if it's like, if it's, you know, the weekend, and I'm doing with something, you know, with my friends, I'll, but not like crazy late, you know, and so it's just kind of, mm-hmm. but it's important to me, because I care like about my mental health. And I would, how many, how many hours a night do you average? Like eight and a half or nine. Mm. <laughs> Good amount. That's good. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you say mental health. I, I know a lot of athletes, um, like Usain Bolt, the sprinter from Jamaica, um, probably all top athletes claim that their biggest advantage in their arsenal is mm-hmm. their sleep, yeah. like getting nine, eight to 10 hours or, and, and, I, and I'm bought in. I know it. I just, I struggle like I struggle with that yeah. go to bed just just go to bed you'll be better in the morning than you are right now yeah. and I'm and I get stuck in that project and I'm like oh no I can I can I can solve it all right now it's like no bro you can't I know let it go yeah it's hard 
do you have any sleep tips like do you do you have like a sleep mask or do you have like sounds in your room or aromatherapy do you do anything do you have a sleep routine yeah when I first got out of Sierra Tucson and I was like on this super like self-care like self-love hype I would do things like um I'd put essential oils like but um like a like you know to help (laughs) but today I don't really do that um I had this like meditation app that I would use um it would tell you like stories like calming stories like and then it would just kind of shut off and you'd be asleep but that didn't work for me either because I was like (laughs) the willow blows in the wind I was like the one character you met you know i would think about the story so, um, you're like the story is horrible it's inconsistent yeah, like, it um so yeah i just like definitely like to sleep in the dark and like in a cold environment i love like cuddling in mm. sheets but um yeah i think just like even not looking at my phone even 30 minutes before bed just kind of mm-hmm. taking it and just putting it aside because it i mean even that bright light Mm -hmm. can be like oh man so just like get away from the phone yeah reading helps me too i love to read so um that's awesome so that's awesome and i mean we talk about it a lot rodney and i are big on big attempted practitioners of mindfulness because we ebb and flow, I think, and how we manage it. Um, but sleep is a big piece of it. And, you know, I try really hard to maintain a nighttime sleep schedule and, you know, I toss and turn a lot, so I don't know. Do you have a routine? Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't anymore. <laughs> I just I just try to, I try to make it as dark and quiet as possible. Um, how about you, Rodney? I have a, a reminder on my calendar to start getting so ready I. for bed. <laughs> so do I. And but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to change it to say what would <laughs> I like it. Because usually I, like it. I look at that reminder and yeah. I say yeah. So so interesting on the mental health thing like I I'm an eternal optimist. Oh. And so I'm also habitually mm-hmm. late. This is and this is a I read fact. a really good <laughs> I read an article saying that, um, suggesting why people that are always late are always late. And it was talking about optimism and maybe they're a little cray cray. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, because of the optimism, you tend to think that you can get more done than you really can. So you don't make an honest evaluation of what you can actually get done in the time allotted. And I'm like, this is me because, because like I have a reminder that goes off. It's like, hey, you need to leave to get to X <laughs> I <love> in, it. <laughs> in in ten minutes, and I'm like, oh, well, in ten minutes, I can, I can finish this paper, I can shower, and I can wash my car, and then it's like, crap, I should have left twenty minutes ago. <laughs> oh man! So uh, real quick, Rodney just did something that a lot of people do. Um, there may be an indication that one, you're an eternal optimist and two, you're cray cray or crazy or the use of these adjectives that have that negative stigma. And if you have mental health, does that mean me? I'm curious to get your thoughts on people using those words um, and how they make you feel. Mm. So I think if people say like, someone's crazy because they're doing something abnormal then like um like if someone just seems down and they're having a bad day oh look at that like crazy like how can they can't they just 
you know, that, I don't like that. Um, I think I'm also a little sensitive mm-hmm. about when people are like, oh man, she's so bipolar, you know, mm. like, mm. what if she really does have bipolar? That's Oh, you mean like that thing where people use it inappropriately? Like they mm-hmm. just throw it out there like... Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it can be taken lightly too. Like I could not like read into those kind of things, but just because I have bipolar, I could, you know, I look it in. Like, well, you could say, you know, she, maybe she's just, you know, having an off day or like maybe she really is struggling with something, you know, and, but I don't think it like tears me apart when someone's like, man, that, you know, that girl over there, you know, she's a crazy like lunatic, but it is kind of like you could use words in a better way than belittling people if it's not really the case, you know. It's something we talk about with this concept of political correctness a lot. It, it, there's a place for it, right? Like, these words, using the word retarded is massively offensive to a lot of people. And for a period of time, it's like, oh, yeah, that is retarded. And then it's like, well, why? Why? There's no need to use that word. There's no, there are other ways to frame this up. And it's not it's not an indictment on you as a person. Hey, you know, just stop using it. It's like, it's, it's okay because you do offend people who, who legitimately struggle with certain scenarios in life and just to blanket statement it because you're not impacted by it. It's like, why, why do it? Well, no, so, you know, this, so this is interesting because we fall on, we don't, Keith and I don't necessarily agree no. on political correctness. Um, so... I, while I agree that there's sensitivity around certain words, I think that there's more to it. That said, with uh, crazy, um, I get it. Like, I'm kind of thinking, like, there's, like, it's part of the stigma, right? Because, like, if you just throw it around and call somebody crazy and don't consider that there might be um, something else there, then it kind of makes it hard for them to get there or say it. And like, it kind of, it just kind of perpetuates the loop. Okay. So you, one of the things that is very important to you is people talking about it. And we've had a really rich conversation um, around mental health and what it means to you, but the concept of talking about it, what does that actually mean to you from, from what you're trying to accomplish with getting to, to eliminate that stigma? So I think there's a lot of different ways people can talk about mental illness, whether it's just in their community with like other people. Um, But I think for me, like myself, um, the way I've chosen to talk about it is I make videos, I, you know, post them on the internet. Um, I, if people, if I'm talking to someone in one of my classes at school and, you know, they're like, you know, they ask me a question about it, you know, I, I love talking and having the conversation with people. Um, but ultimately what I, why I want to like continue in the filmmaking kind of path is because I want to, I want to write about the real aspects of mental illness and put that on the big screen someday because the media doesn't do a very good job mm-hmm. at that at the moment. So, it's, but, um, yeah. No, that's cool. So you want to bring awareness, kind of normalize or help normalize. Represent it on, more accurately yeah. as well. Yeah. Represents. Yeah, yeah. That's a good, um, something you mentioned adult, uh, I wrote down adults listening to parents. So like, your parents listen to you and, well, they notice something 
and then they they acted and then later they've they've listened to you and like when you went to wyoming like your your dad heard that and and he could have ignored it because no it's too expensive we can't do it the eating thing um and then you're you told us you're reading a book called lies my lies my teachers told me yeah lies my teacher teacher told me yeah and so i want do you have a what's your thought on adults listening to children or 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 yeah this is really relevant with the whole gun control thing too yeah Yeah. wow this is um and because i have a nine-month-old and like it's really easy to think like like i grew up in a house it was like you do it because i said so um, i'm the i'm the parent that's why you do it right um well i guess i don't really know much different because i've had parents who have taken into consideration my thoughts and feelings you know growing up which has really helped me and they have listened to me um if I wouldn't have gone to Wyoming and gotten, you know, on the horse, you know, thing, um, I probably would still be struggling with an eating disorder today, you know, unless later on they let me go to Wyoming. But, um, I think that like, as the person struggling with the mental illness, although, you know, you're in a different state of mind and there's an imbalance, you know, going on, I think that you do have to listen to that person because, where they are, you know, not themselves, they, they're still there, you know? And so it's, you know, if, if my parents wouldn't have, you know, heard me out, you know, and, I mean, they gave me the option to go to this treatment facility in Tucson. You know, they said, do you want to do this? You know, and I said, yeah, this is going to help me. And I want to do it. So, I mean, you've got to like, res- I'm sure you have to respect your parents. I mean, I have done my best in that way, but, um, it's definitely important to listen to the person even struggling with the mental illness, you know, cause they're the ones going through it. So what's your, do you have any advice for families going through anything like what you went through or whether it's like a parent or a fa- or a child or um, diagnosed or undiagnosed, like any advice you would give to somebody? Yeah, let's see. Um, I would say like, um, well, first of all, tr- try your best not to be ashamed of the diagnosis because once you just treat it like any other illness, you can um, you can get help, you can um, move on with your life, you can continue living just because you have bipolar depression or schizophrenia. I mean, it's they're hard things to live with, but you can keep living. And so, seeking out treatment and treating it no differently than cancer or broken arms um i think is a big key when so in your video you so talking about it is important for you today and you've actually come to a really good place where you're able to talk about it but in your video you talk about how at the time when you were with counselors and other people you wouldn't because they didn't know what you you didn't want to talk about it and that's a lot of people right like do you have, like, what was that like for you? If you could go back, I don't know if you're able to go back to that frame of mind, but what what was it like that a lot of people can understand? And two, what advice do you give people who are in that position today and haven't spent, you know, nine years getting to this place? Um, You're right. You know, it was hard. It was hard for me to talk to the counselors and nutritionists. And I would say that I didn't feel like a lot of them understood exactly what I was going through. But, you know, today, like looking back, they, you know, they 
they're specialized in this kind of treatment and helping, you know, to, I mean, even, it could have even been a Band-Aid that could have saved me from going just, you know, off the deep end. So um, even, I mean, I don't know how I felt about the nutritionist. I think that was kind of funny because I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat. But um, so I would say, like, if you are... If it's, if it's hard for you to get help and it's you don't feel like they understand you, um, sometimes it's just, it's a way to keep going and to keep, um, to keep, to, to even know on your calendar, like, okay, I have a counseling appointment. You know, it's not my favorite place, but I'm going to go, I'm going to talk and I might get something out of it. You know, that, that could be a mindset you could use, but, um, a lot of times it just doesn't seem like it helps, but I feel like it helped me get to where I am today, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. No, I appreciate that. That's good yeah. advice. So the, there was good counselors, hard to find counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, any tips for somebody looking Ooh. for one? Like how would you maybe identify a good one or is there a network or anything that they can reach out to to help find one in their area? I would say talking around to people who you know who have struggled with um, mental illness and um, that's how we found, you know, my favorite psychiatrist right now is just by talking to other people and word of mouth because um, sometimes just going into it blind is when it's kind of like, you know, you're just walking on eggshells and you just don't know if it's going to work. But um, hmm. just, yeah, I mean, that's part of like being open about it, too, though. If people will talk to you about their struggles, maybe they'd be willing to talk about who they're seeing to get help. And how about the counselor? Yeah. That's a that's difficult, too, right? Yeah, um, I have a good counselor today. Um, he he like is a counselor that um, counsels out of NAU, the college. So, um, you know, it just kind of worked out for me that way. But as long as I can just talk to someone, you know, that's been good for me, you know. Um, I want to put a highlight on something you said earlier. You said for you, it was never a body um, image issue. And I know that we were talking to your mom about this, that people would talk to her about, like putting, trying to put blame on her for saying like, oh, you work out and like you do these things and you watch what you eat. So maybe she took that from you or like it's the media and like all these, you know, swimsuit models and this and that. But that was never, that wasn't, it, it was all about control for you yeah. or at least from what you understand now. Um, Cause I, I think, I don't know. And there's a lot to it. I think we as humans, we, d we need something to point to for blame. And maybe that's a tough thing with mental illness because there is not, there, there may not be a reason. Yeah. It might just exist. Yeah. And it's hard to accept that, I think, for a us. A fall leads to broken arms. Um, okay, I can understand that. But it's like, right. what's leading? And I think that's a really yeah, good point then, that you bring up, Rodney. And, and I appreciate that because, you know, that's often the question. What did your parents do? to make you think body image was so important when that had nothing to do with it at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I wanted to ask, um, if, if you're good with it, where can people find you? Like in, Insta, I, uh, Twitter, like what, what avenues could they find you on to find your videos and the, the content you're making? Yeah. So I have an Instagram and that's just at Bracia 
um, I can spell it out. Bresha, B-R-E-S-C-I-A, and then dot Dover, D-O-V-E-R. And then my YouTube is just Bresha Dover. If you just type that in, I should pop up. Perfect. All right, we'll share those links yeah. as well. So, I'm, I, I'm curious how you feel. Like, you know, two hours, you just talk to two strangers. Yeah, no, I feel like I wish I could have conversations like this all the time. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, I feel like it's so nice to talk about, you know, things that are kind of, you don't you're not able to talk about with a lot of people. And although I'm trying, you know, it's it's nice to like have two people listening and I'm interested in your story. So that was awesome. Yeah. Cool. So, Bracia, you know, as we're coming up on time here, I, I personally just want to thank you so much for talking about your story, talking about the depth of your story, navigating the, the current circumstances that, that you've, you know, that you're going through as well as the, the past with anorexia. So, so just thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for talking with us. And I really can't uh, appreciate enough uh, the, the time that we've spent this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome.